North Pole Hotline, Mrs. Claus here. My holiday shopping list is so big, I can't wait for Black Friday. Get to Old Navy's biggest sale of the year starting tomorrow. Old Navy? Beat the crowds for 50% off your entire purchase. 50% off? Plus, this Friday only, Old Navy's famous cozy socks are just a buck in stores. Old Navy's getting $1 for every pair sold up to a million dollars to boys and girls clubs. So I can do good, look good, and get 50% off your entire purchase at Old Navy and OldNavy.com. Valid 1121 to 1123. Exclusions apply. See store for details. Cozy socks valid 1123 in stores only. Limit 10. Blog Talk Radio. Good evening, everybody. Welcome back to Dr. Low Radio. I am your host, Dr. Lauren Noel, and I am stoked that you can join me. I have a fabulous show lined up for you tonight, as usual. Thanks for all the support to all my faithful listeners. The show's popularity is growing fast, so I appreciate you all tuning in. Continue to spreading the word about the show so we can reach as many people as we can. Tonight I'll be taking live callers, Facebook questions, and Twitter questions, so check those out, facebook.com slash Noel, twitter.com slash Noel, and uh, the call-in number is 818-495-6919. I've had a bunch of questions about health consulting, and yes, I am currently accepting patients. I work with patients from all over the country and even the world. I have patients in Europe, Middle East, all over the place. If you're looking for a healthcare practitioner who can work with you from the convenience of your home, check out my website, drlaurennoel.com. That's D-R-L-A-U-R-E-N-N-O-E-L.com. And that's for Skype and phone consultations. If you missed last week's show, it was a fabulous one. I had Julia Ross, the author of The Mood Cure and The Diet Cure, on the show to discuss mental disorders like depression, anxiety, eating disorders, and addictions, and how these can all be remedied with natural medicine. She's a very successful practitioner. She has many clinics and is very respected in the community. And that is available as an archived show if you missed it, as well as all the previous episodes of Dr. Low Radio. I've had a ton of interest in gluten testing after doing the show with Dr. Thomas O'Brien a couple weeks ago, and 60 to 70% of patients are sensitive to gluten. That is a lot of people. If you are sensitive, well, if you are sensitive and don't know it, you could be setting yourself up for all sorts of problems. Gluten sensitivity is associated with autoimmune diseases, hypothyroidism, weight gain, and all kinds of other problems. So I'm running a special until May 20th. That's for $199 for the test and interpretation. It's a saliva test that's green before celiac disease. So to get up, to get set up with the test, check out the website, drlaurennoel.com. I am a blogger. I've been blogging for the first time, actually a couple weeks ago I started, for the Jenna Phillips 30-Day Skinny Jeans Challenge. Um, this week I talked about the damaged metabolism. So for those of you who are trying to lose weight and doing all the right things that it's just not coming off, check out the blog. Uh, you might get some nice information from it, jennaphillips.com. Future shows. Next week I will have the very fabulous T.S. Wiley on the show. She's the author of Lights Out. Should be a fabulous show to check out. She and I will be discussing the physiology of sleep and how incredibly important sleep is, anti-cancer, for your immune function, for energy, for maintaining a healthy weight, all kinds of stuff. The following week, naturopathic physician Dr. Daniel DeLapp, he was one of my professors, fabulous doctor, he'll be on to discuss dermatology from a naturopathic perspective. Talk about acne, eczema, psoriasis, rashes, you name it. We'll be talking about it, and as usual, we'll be taking your calls. The number to call in, 818 Four nine five six nine one nine. That's if you'd like to just listen or to ask a question and press 1 if you would like to ask the question. And if you don't know by now, Dr. Low Radio is a podcast. You can download it and listen on your MP3 player while you're cleaning your house, working out, road tripping, whatever. So definitely check it out. Just uh, type Dr. Low Radio in iTunes and you will find that podcast. 
So let's move on to tonight's show. Tonight's topic may be completely foreign to most of you, even to some of you doctors out there. Although it is researched in the scientific literature, it's a condition that is incredibly underdiagnosed and debilitating to people who suffer from it. It's often misdiagnosed as just IBS, can cause very similar symptoms, and even very vague symptoms like joint pain, muscle pain, and a lot more things that we'll talk about tonight. It is a mouthful for the topic, small intestinal bacterial overgrowth with the short-term SIBO. And joining me is expert in this particular condition and naturopathic doctor, Dr. Allison Seebecker. Dr. Seebecker is a 2005 graduate from the National College of Natural Medicine, where I also graduated from, and she earned both her naturopathic doctorate and master's in oriental medicine. She's worked in the nutritional field since 1988 and taught on the subjects of gastroenterology, endocrinology, nutrition, and natural beauty. Dr. Seebecker received the Best in Naturopathy Award from the Townsend Letter for her 2005 article, Traditional Bone Broth in Modern Health and Disease. She spent the last two years researching this particular condition and is writing a comprehensive book on the subject. She teaches continuing education classes on SIBO. And for more information, check out SIBOinfo.com. And I found in my own research, she's also a Weston Pricer, so definitely will appeal to a lot of my listeners tonight as well as to myself. So I will go ahead and bring Dr. Seebecker on the line. Dr. Seebecker, are you there? I'm here. Hello. Great. Can you hear me? Thank you for joining me. I can. Wonderful. Hello, Thanks Lauren. For, thanks for coming on the show. Hi, it's great to finally uh, talk to you on live air. <laughs> now, can you hear me okay? I'm actually on my cell phone tonight. Normally, I use my house line, but I have to use my cell phone. I can hear you just fine. Perfect. Well, good. Let's jump into it. So first off, tell us a little bit about your journey and becoming the expert in this particular condition that you are. It's very uh, uh, specific. So what's your journey been like? Well, I had struggled for a long time with chronic digestive issues uh, with a form of IBS. And I'm a doctor myself, um, so you'd think I'd know what to do. Uh, and I've been to all the best that there are, um, all, the, all my teachers, so many doctors I've been to. <clears throat> but as anyone who has IBS knows, there, it's not well understood and there isn't, isn't really a cure for it. Hold on, I got a frog in my throat. One second. <laughs> of course, that would happen right as I begin talking. Oh, it's awesome. Um, it's all good. <laughs> so, um, so I, I was really just struggling with my own um, chronic GI issues. When I was in medical school, my gastroenterology professor, Dr. Sandberg Lewis, had put a book um, on our recommended reading list called Breaking the Vicious Cycle by Elaine Gottschall. And this book described a diet called the Specific Carbohydrate Diet. And it described the condition of small intestine bacterial overgrowth. But she didn't call it that. She called it a vicious cycle. And I had read this book when I was in, um, in school, and it was just amazing. It, it blew my mind. I, I thought, this has got to be what's going on with me. But somehow or other, I just wound up forgetting about it. I think it's because, you know, my next round of midterms or something came, and it's very overwhelming, as you know, uh, being in medical school. So something happened, and I just couldn't think about it. But, um, but, but after school, um, after I'd been practicing for a while, I just really wanted to find answers. And I remembered the book, so I, uh, I went and read it again. Then I wound up bumping into uh, Dr. Sandberg Lewis at a seminar. He had just completed a book, uh, a book on functional gastroenterology called Functional Gastroenterology. And during all his research, he had come across this condition called small intestine bacterial overgrowth. 
So I was telling him about my my rereading of the book and the research I was starting to get into, and he told me about SIBO, and, and that just set me off. After that, I just started um, finding more and more about it. I was blown away to find out that the medical gastroenterology community had been doing just hardcore research, incredible research on this condition, finding out mechanisms and um, just amazing things. So I just started re- researching and researching. I put myself, pretty much gave myself a full-time job of finding out everything I could about it. And, and it wasn't a hard job because I was so passionate about it. I just had to read everything. So that's what I've been doing for about two years. And, you know, I haven't even read every every SIB article yet, even in all this long time. There's so much out there, yet nobody knows about it. Right. So, um, so then I, I started, of course, applying all the treatments to myself before I even... Um, had that meeting with Dr. SSL to find out about the term SIBO and, and, and the research that's been done, I had um, started myself on the specific carbohydrate diet described in Breaking the Vicious Cycle, and uh, it was incredible. I mean, for me, within 24 hours, I had relief. So I was sold pretty fast. And um, I know so many people with that suffer from these types of conditions, not just IBS, but um, so many other conditions can be treated with it, like uh, inflammatory bowel disease, um, even celiac disease, and many other things. So uh, I just, I really want to spread the information. I've just been consumed with interest in it, and now I've, I've made this website, um, this educational website, so anyone who's interested can find more information in one place. And I'll keep working on developing that website. And of course, I'll have a book coming out eventually, probably in about another year. So so that's kind of my, my story. Awesome. And it's, it's so common to hear that, you know, it's like the, the things that we as doctors choose to kind of specialize in a lot of times the things that we suffered from ourselves. Um, digestive health is a huge interest of mine, and I had all kinds of gut issues when I was in high school and college, and I was helped so much by a naturopath, and so that's kind of become a passion of mine as well. So definitely share that interest as well. Um, we'll definitely jump into this condition and, and, and all the things that come along with it, but let's take a step back and talk about how is bacteria, because this is a bacterial imbalance in the gut, so how is bacteria normally balanced in the gut? Well, normally, the way it should be is that we should have very little bacteria um, in our mouth and our esophagus, our stomach, our small intestine, because we have um, all sorts of protective um, things in place to keep the bacteria low. So really, the bacteria that comes in from our food or um, or that we just might be exposed to should really be passing through the upper intestines. Then when you get down into the large intestine, that's really the place where the bacteria should be living. And it's a good thing. We have a symbiotic relationship there. And that organ is made to contain all these bacteria. And they do great things like make vitamins for us and help us digest our food and all sorts of good things stimulate our immune system. Um, And so within the large intestine, of course, most people know we should have the beneficial bacteria there. The beneficial bacteria are the types of bacteria in the probiotics. They're lactic acid-producing bacteria like lactobacilli and bifidus. And uh, they can help control the opportunistic bacteria and the pathogenic bacteria. They actually can secrete uh, antibiotic substances that kill those other bacteria, as well as doing all sorts of other things like stimulating our own immune system and uh, and those making the vitamins and all those good things. So so that's how that's how we would like it to be. We would like there to be barely any bacteria just passing through in the upper intestine, a nice good healthy amount of of the good bacteria in the large intestine. 
Got it. And so, so what is what is SIBO exactly, and and how does this develop? Well, what it is is it's a chronic bacterial infection in the small intestine, and it's it's as the name uh, implies, it's an overgrowth. So the infection, normally when we think of infection, we think of pathogenic bacteria like um, Shigella or Salmonella or something like that that can give us a, a gastroenteritis infection, and that would be an acute situation. We would probably have diarrhea, maybe vomiting. We'd feel really terrible for several days. Then we would get rid of it, um, or we would get medicine, or, you know, in the worst-case scenario, it would kill a person, um, which can happen, of course. So, so that's what we think of as infection. This isn't an infection of pathogenic bacteria because that would look quite different. This is an infection of what we would call commensal bacteria, bacteria that normally does live in our bodies. Now, we don't exactly know for sure which bacteria are the bacteria involved in SIBO because it's a very hard place to test the small intestine. It's, it's sort of deep, dark cave in the center of the body. The only way we can find, uh, find what's in there is through uh, an endoscope which comes in through the mouth and down the, uh, down the esophagus into the upper small intestine, and it can only get as far as about the first two feet of the small intestine called the duodenum. Um, or we could use a colonoscope. Uh, most people have heard of colonoscopies. That would come through the large intestine, and you, sometimes you can just get the scope through the ileocecal valve into the bottom of the small intestine. So that leaves the main portion of the small intestine, maybe 17 feet, that um, can't, can't be tested in that way. When they use those instruments, they um, can take a, an aspirate of, of the, the fluid there. They could also take a biopsy of um, a, a piece of the tissue of the lining of the intestine, and then they can look at it, and they can, they can take the aspirate, the fluid, fluid, and they can culture it to see what bacteria grow. But you're not testing 17, 17 feet of the intestines there, so how really can we know? Um, we, we can't. Plus, on, on top of it, a lot of that bacteria is anaerobic bacteria, which means that oxygen is toxic to them or fatal to them. So it's extremely difficult to get those bacteria to grow outside the body. So within those limitations, the cultures that have been done of, of the upper intestines in this condition, what they've shown is just an overgrowth of bacteria that's normally present in the large intestine predominantly, and those are called coliform bacteria, um, and sometimes an overgrowth of bacteria that normally resides in the mouth or the esophagus. So it's just bacteria from either end that's migrated to the small intestine where it shouldn't be in too large of a number. So, th so the best way to think of it is just it's a chronic infection of the small intestine of normal bacteria. Now, what you might be thinking, I don't know if this is going to be your next question, but, well, mm -hmm. is it the beneficial bacteria or is it just, you know, opportunistic bacteria? And this is not really known yet. Um, I've been really working on this question and I, I can't quite answer it yet. I, I don't believe... I don't believe it's an overgrowth currently in my reading right now of like lactobacillus acidophilus, but uh, there are some who, who think it is. For instance, for anyone who's read Elaine Gottschall's book, Breaking the Vicious Cycle, she's quite adamant that um, no patient is to use bifidus because bifidus is a predominant large intestine bacteria, a beneficial bacteria for the large intestine, and this condition is characterized by an overgrowth of large intestine bacteria. So she doesn't want it 
she doesn't want you consuming it. She thinks it's a problem. So, you know, it's a controversial subject, and I, I can't say for sure, but we certainly know that at least just the standard commensal bacteria is overgrown. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, I never even heard of that um, that thought before that you shouldn't take bifidus because that's more for the colon. What if you're getting like a a, um, a colonic and then they they put the you know the bifidus after the colonic through the rectum? Is that maybe is that okay then? That, that would cert- that would be fine according to um, Elaine Gottschall. Uh, right. But you know there are plenty of other doctors who don't agree. For instance, one of the other main books that discusses this is Gut and Psychology Syndrome by Dr. Campbell McBride. She uses the specific carbohydrate diet, but in a modified, slightly modified form. And uh, she doesn't think bifidus is a problem at all. And and I would have to say that um, in my in the patients I've treated and with the people I've uh, dealt with, bifidus is not a problem. But, you know, you never know. There could be that person. And I have read accounts where uh, people don't respond well to bifidus, so it can happen. Right. Yeah, I have noticed, you know, some people handle probiotics better than others, so it's just all individualized. Um, you mentioned that the, the, the bacteria could be migrating from above the intestine down or below the intestine and up. How does this happen? Why would this happen in one person versus someone else? Great question. So this is, of course, how, you know, what's the cause? How does this happen? Right. Well, there's two, there's two main um, ideas as to, as to the underlying cause um, in terms of, within our own body um, having having a, a decrease of what should normally be there. And that would be the hydrochloric acid of the stomach. So if we have uh, hypochlorhydria, the acid in the stomach kills bacteria. So if we, if we have a decrease in that, that means, you know, when the bacteria comes in from our food that we're eating, we're not, not able to kill it as well, and it could, there could be more of it to accumulate in the small intestine. But the other key factor is, there is um, a natural peristalsis or motility of the small intestine that uh, none of us doctors got taught about when we were in school, so I had to learn all about it, and it's called the migrating motor complex or the interdigestive phase three. And this is a separate motility from the large intestine. Um, so it happens only in the small intestine, and it occurs between meals or at night. So it's during fasting. It's it's not peristalsis that moves your food down. It's actually considered to be a house cleaner or a cleansing wave. And it, it takes any um, undigested food or indigestible food, any debris and any bacteria, and it moves it all the way down the small intestine to be ready to go across into the large intestine through the ileocecal valve. So this is really thought to be one of the main reasons how this can happen. If if you no longer have a migrating motor complex or if it's working poorly or insufficiently, you won't be able to clear bacteria out of your small intestine. I mean, just physically, you won't be able to clear it out. So, um, so that's how it can start accumulating. And a little bit of backflow from the ileocecal valve through the, through the valve from the large intestine is normal. Um, I think uh, um, it's you can think of it kind of like the valve that's at, uh, at the bottom of the esophagus and the top of the stomach, the lower esophageal sphincter. This is the valve that people get um, acid reflux through. A little bit of reflux is normal in everybody. So uh, a little bit of bacteria can, can come across the ileocecal valve into the small intestine. But some people have the valve, the ileocecal valve, sort of stuck in an open position and uh, body workers and chiropractors and naturopaths, we can test for this. Uh, But if that happens, if you have an open valve and then you have no migrating motor complex, you can see how easy it would be for the bacteria to just come across 
and start um, populating and colonizing the small intestine, in particular uh, without that migrating motor complex. Hmm. That's really interesting. And so then, why might someone have less of this cleansing wave versus someone else? Yeah, so so the ways this happen is it can happen from diseases. For instance, uh, so you so you could have a predisposing disease. It can happen from uh, diabetes would be a good one. Uh, a lot of uh, patients with diabetes, most in fact, will get a condition called gastroparesis, and this is where the stomach has a very slow, delayed emptying or or movement that goes hand in hand with a decreased migrating motor complex. Um, also, hypothyroid, uh, which so many people have, hypothyroid uh, uh, is a condition of low motility um, of, of, the di- of the digestive tract. So low migrating motor complex goes along with that. But I think um, one of the main ways people get it who have this condition is after a bout of gastroenteritis. So this, uh, for most people, this would be called post-infectious IBS. And what happens is, the um the the pathogenic bacteria that cause a gastroenteritis infection can secrete substances that act like um opiates um like opiate uh, drugs and they slow the motility of our of our small intestine and they do this so that they can get a foothold so that they can colonize and what happens is we can clear the infection um, and, and, and get better from that, from the vomiting and the diarrhea. But for some reason, I don't know why, uh, the migrating motor complex activity doesn't get restored. And about 50% of people who have gastroenteritis will go on to have IBS. And uh, this seems to be uh, a probable cause for that. So I think that might be one of the main reasons. Then you can also take into account um, just just lifestyle sort of predisposing types of things all together. Uh, because, you know, what makes what makes the the half the people with gastroenteritis go on to this condition but half not? Well, they might have a weakened digestive system already. And how that could happen is um, certainly from something like um, an over overconsumption of carbohydrates, which I can get into in a minute, but also from from things like a poor colonization of the bacteria we're supposed to have when we're first born, um, a poor colonization. And this could be due to lack of breastfeeding. Of course, this is such a widespread issue for uh, not so much for people who are getting born today. I think there's been a real change. But, you know, I, I'm in my 40s. For people like my age or around my age, breastfeeding was just not done. Um, or uh, if there was a cesarean section, that's, of course, very common today. What happens is you get colonized by the bacteria that's in the hospital. Um, and if you don't have breastfeeding, the same, most, most non, non-fed breast babies were born in the hospital. Uh, and the hospital bacteria, we know that's a pretty scary situation. Those are antibiotic-resistant bacteria, and they're, they're not the bacteria that we would normally be colonized by. Um, or just uh, another example would be even if you had, even if you're, not born by cesarean, even if you were breastfed, if your mom had uh, intestinal troubles, probably had a, a poor um, spectrum of bacteria, what we call dysbiosis, that will be passed on to you through the breastfeeding. So there's a lot of predisposing ways we can have a weakened system to start with. And, you know, that, of course, you mentioned Western Price. That's something that we, I think, a lot of us think about with the Pottinger's cat scenario uh, of this being the third, the fourth, or the fifth generation now and uh, not having the best start. 
Right. Wow, that's so interesting how something even as early as when you're a baby not getting that dose of good bacteria when you're born, how that can affect your whole life and cause all kinds of potential things down the line. So interesting. Um, we know that such this condition bummer. is such a what? Oh, I said it's such a bummer. <laughs> it is such a bummer, you know, because, like, you, that's not, you, you can't control what, what your mom does, you know, but that's, that's the good thing about these kind of shows is getting the word out there so that people know what they're actually providing for their child, you know. Um, so we know this particular condition is very underdiagnosed. Um, how underdiagnosed do you think it is? How common is SIBO? Well, it's been studied for um, for healthy people, just randomly healthy people, seeing how many have SIBO. And the studies show about 35%. But by my estimations, um, using other factors, I think it could be as much as 50% of the general population having SIBO. And, you know, one of, one of the main conditions that's related to this is IBS. Uh, Dr. Mark Pimentel wrote a wonderful book called A New IBS Solution, and he's one of the main SIBO researchers, and, and his focus is relating SIBO as an underlying cause of IBS, which is just so wonderful for, if you believe it, of course it's still controversial in many circles, but it's wonderful for those of us who have had IBS to finally have um, a really viable cause be suggested. Um, but IBS is extremely common. So, you know, you just think about how many people have IBS, and it's it's a high percentage. And then then you look at those studies saying just um, out of any healthy person, 35%. I'd say it's from 35 to 50%, so it's a lot of people. Wow, that's a lot of people. Um, wow. We've talked about kind of how it develops, how common it is. Um, what's happening, like if you zoom in on the gut and just check out what's happening, you know, what's happening on that level. But for someone who has this particular condition, they may not know that this is occurring. So what are some of the symptoms that someone with SIBO could have? The main symptoms are going to be, well, I, I group them into, into two compartments. One is the GI symptoms, the digestive symptoms, and the other are the systemic symptoms. So the, the main GI symptoms are going to be the symptoms of IBS. So this is going to be, by the way, IBS is irritable bowel syndrome, if I didn't say that before for anyone who doesn't know. But um, there, that's going to be abdominal bloating, um, which is gas. And so that means you could have increased belching or flatulence, um, abdominal pain um, or cramps, and then motility problems such as constipation, diarrhea, or both. Then in addition to those main IBS symptoms, uh, other symptoms that are very common are heartburn. Um, like acid reflux or GERD, and, and also nausea um, of unknown origin. So those would be the digestive symptoms. Then for the systemic symptoms, um, and the systemic, systemic symptoms come because, we, we can talk about the pathophysiologies here a little bit later if you'd like to, but the systemic symptoms come from the fact that SIBO causes a leaky gut, which I like to call leaky small intestine in this scenario. Um, and when you have that, uh, food particles, uh, bacteria, and all sorts of things can, can get through the lining that are not supposed to of the small intestine, and our body can react to them. So, so the most common symptom there would be food sensitivities. We shouldn't really be reacting to, uh, to our food in an immune way or in other ways, but if we can get through that lining, we can have food sensitivities. So, I mean, you know, you just think about how many people you know that either have, you know, um, abdominal pain or bloating, constipation, diarrhea, and food sensitivities. Then you can understand those high percentages of, of people that might have SIBO. 
And then some of the other symptoms would be, these are like your, your classic leaky gut symptoms um, because it can be so many, many things. It can manifest so many different ways. would be headaches, joint pain, um, skin symptoms like eczema or rashes, fatigue, um, respiratory symptoms like asthma is often related to it, mood symptoms like depression, and brain symptoms um, like autism. Um, or uh, other other types of conditions like that. So it inc- encompasses a lot of people. And also um, things like fibromyalgia or chronic fatigue, those, that would be a systemic symptom that's leaked, uh, linked very much to leaky small intestine. Wow. So is it that, that SIBO can lead to these conditions, or do some of these conditions predispose someone to getting SIBO? Yes, it can go both ways, absolutely. Um, you can have a condition and then develop SIBO, or you could could get SIBO from the causes we talked about before and then develop these conditions. So, uh, you know, like, for instance, with autism, that's, you know, hotly debated as to how that really occurs. Um, Dr. Campbell McBride's book, you know, is all about that um, related to SIBO. So I'm sure there's going to be people on both sides saying, well, this, you know, SIBO causes this, or this is linked to. And I think it can go both ways depending upon on the patient. But I think um, I think what, what I really want to do is help raise awareness of SIBO as a cause, although it can go both ways. Um, I, I'd like to raise awareness on that so that particularly physicians or, or any patients will think of that, will begin thinking of it, and can get proper testing and treatment. Right. I definitely want to get into the testing and treatment in a sec. I want to take a, a Facebook question and then take a, a, a caller. So the call from the 303, if you could just hold on the line for a second, I'll get to you in just a sec. So I have a question from uh, Jamie from Facebook. She wants to know, uh, I've been taking probiotics for a while. Can I overdo probiotics? And then could this possibly lead to this condition? Well, I do think you can overdo pro- probiotics. I've heard of cases like that. Um, I couldn't tell you exactly how much is too much for you because I, I do think it is somewhat um, independent. I do know that um, uh, Elaine Gottschall said not to have more than about 700 billion per day. That's a lot. That's um, a lot. <laughs> a real lot. Which if you're making your own homemade yogurt, you can get that in about three three cups or a little bit more than three really? cups. So yeah. it's possible. But not so much with supplements. That cost a fortune. But... Um, but uh, but I don't think that over overdosing, if you were overdosing on probiotics, can cause SIBO unless you have some of those other circumstances going on. If you have an intact migrating motor complex, really don't see how it's possible because your you know your bacteria would be swept swept down and out and away. Okay, got it. Very cool. Okay, I'm going to take a caller from the 303. Caller, are you there? Yes, I am. Hi, what's your name? Where are you calling from? My name is Michelle. I'm calling from Colorado. Great. What's your uh, question for Dr. Seebecker? My question is, is Crohn's disease caused by the SIBO? Dr. Lowe, I don't know if you can hear me. I just lost Hello? you. Hello? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. We're here. Go ahead. Uh, Dr. Seebecker, can you hear us? Uh-oh. Here. Ah, I hear you. Hi. There you go. Go Hello. ahead. We can hear you. Hi. Did you hear my question? I'm so sorry. I didn't hear your question. I said, is Crohn's disease caused by SIBO? 
Well, there are some people who think that. Um, I don't think that at this time, but I think I think the more important point is that so many people with Crohn's can find great benefit in treating SIBO if if they have it, uh, which I think many many do. Um, and so I think I think that's the more important thing. I think whether it really causes it or not um, is still is still under debate because all all the causes of Crohn's are still under debate. So, but I think what's really good to know is that you can get tested for SIBO if you have Crohn's, and if you do have SIBO, a remarkable remarkable improvement is possible. Okay. Okay. Can I ask another question? Sure. Sure. Can can uh, Crohn's disease be controlled by a special diet? For many, many people, it, it has been. Um, the specific carbohydrate diet and or the GAPS diet, which just is just a variation of it, has worked like a miracle for many, many people. Uh, of course, there's some people it hasn't worked for, but the um, the percentage rate of success for that diet for inflammatory bowel disease is 84%. 84% success. Very, very high. Oh, that's great. Okay, well, thank you so much. You're welcome. Bye. All right. So let's keep, keep on going here for the other callers. If you could just um, wait on the line, I'll take your questions in a few minutes. And for those who'd like to call in, it's 818-495-6919, 818-495-6919. So we've talked a little bit about... Um, what SIBO is. We talked about the symptoms, um, how common it is. If a person is thinking that they might have this, um, how could they be diagnosed for this condition? The, the best test that we have right now is a breath test. It's a hydrogen breath test. Um, since we were talking earlier about how hard it is to really properly test most of the small intestine, um, then, you know, everyone can understand that even this test isn't perfect um, and has limitations. But right now, I think it's definitely the best option. So um, so it's a hydrogen breath test, um, and this te- the hydrogen breath test can be used for three different things. It can be used for testing um, for H. pylori infection in the stomach or for um, lactose intolerance or for SIBO. So there's, there's three different versions of this test. This is the SIBO version. And the way this test works, um, how we're able to do this test is that bacteria, um, when they eat food, and in this scenario they eat our food, um, they're in the small intestine overgrown and they're going to eat our food, and what they eat is carbohydrates, predominantly carbohydrates. Um, And when they eat food, they emit gas, they make gas. Um, and the gas that they make, we don't make. They make hydrogen gas, methane gas, and sometimes hydrogen sulfide gas. They also make carbon dioxide, but we do make that too. But we're mostly concerned with the hydrogen and the methane. So if uh, if they are there in an overgrown manner, um, we can test for that gas. What What we do is we drink a sugar solution, either glucose or lactulose, and then if you have the overgrowth, the bacteria will um, eat that sugar. They'll make gas. And then a certain portion of that gas is going to be absorbed into our blood and uh, come to our lungs so we can breathe it out. And that's how the test works. Um, there's a little, uh, there's a packet of the sugar solution you drink. And then there's a little um, breathing apparatus that you just exhale into. And there's, there's an attached syringe or different scenarios. This is a kit you take 
home with you from your doctor. And then um, that gas is, or that breath of yours is is put into tubes and sent off to a lab and they analyze it and see if it has hydrogen or methane gas. So it's called the uh, the hydrogen breath test? Yeah. And if um, if you're interested in finding out resources for that, you can go to, uh, to my website and I have a page on testing and the laboratories that do it. And um, once again, my, my website is sibioinfo.com and you can connect into the laboratories. And, and if there are any listeners in areas, um, I'm, I'm in Portland, Oregon, and I've been training um, uh, my fellow doctors on this. So we have a lot of practitioners here. But if you're listening from an area that you, you're not sure might have any trained professionals in this, you can actually call um, the different breath testing laboratories and ask them to connect you with doctors who order the test kits from them. So that's my, my best recommendation for finding the doctor in your area. So it, um, for listeners who are already seeing a particular doctor, is this something that their doctor might not be familiar with? Yes, definitely, because this is really such a new um, topic. Really, I mean, the research has only been really actively been going on for the last 15 years, which is pretty new. Um, and there's a lot that's, that's still needing to be learned about and figured out. So it's definitely true that, that your doctor may not, may not know about this test or how to perform it or anything like that. Um, you can, you know, if, if that's the case, you can refer them also to my website. I have also um, much information on the website that's meant just for physicians as well, so they should be able to see that. Perfect. So in conventional medicine, for those conventional doctors who do know about this, how is this condition typically treated? Well, Dr. Pimentel, who I mentioned earlier, who wrote that book, A New IBS Solution, wonderful book, he, in that book and in some of his uh, research studies, he has um, shared with everybody his treatment protocol. It's actually called the Cedars-Sinai Treatment Protocol, which is the hospital he's associated with in L.A. And um, he, he has um, a, a couple of ways of approaching it. To get rid of the bacteria, either the use of antibiotics, certain, certain antibiotics, or the use of what's called an elemental formula. So most everyone knows about antibiotics. I don't really need to describe that. They're usually done for one to two weeks. And they, uh, the new dose-finding studies are up to about 91% success using antibiotics um, in eradicating SIBO. So very good, very good success. Um, but the other way is this elemental formula. And what that is is it's a, it's a powdered drink that consists of the most elemental parts of what we would consume in our diet. So it's like a protein powder, which should really be amino acids, and in many cases it is in, in proper formulations, amino acids, um, free fatty acids or oil for the fat, and for the carbohydrates, it's um, in a lot of cases it's maltodextrin. It really should just be monosaccharides, but in a lot of formulas it's maltodextrin. And then there's vitamins and minerals, like a multivitamin in there. And that uh, drink is taken uh, three times a day in place of meals for two weeks. So it's an alternative to antibiotics. If somebody didn't want to do the antibiotics, they could do this. Um, or, so currently using it is, if the antibiotics don't work, he'll then put, uh, put patients on the elemental formula in place of, as a second approach. So once you do uh, a, a sort of a quick killing method like that, then... Um, Patients are put for prevention on a diet, um, which uh, in Dr. Pimentel's protocol, it's the Cedars-Sinai diet, which is a variation of a uh, low-residue diet or 
um, a simpler way of thinking of it is sort of a low-fiber diet. It's not that different from, from the specific carbohydrate diet, but it does allow some grains. A, a key feature of the specific and carbohydrate diet and GAPS diet is that they're grain-free, so they're even beyond gluten-free. And the cedar Sinai diet does allow some grains, but in a moderate amount. So there's be that diet, and that is recommended ongoing because the overconsumption of carbohydrates um, could lead to uh, to an overgrowth of bacteria. So you don't want to be consuming too many carbohydrates. And then secondarily, he um, uses a what's called a prokinetic drug or motility agent um, in a very low dose at night to stimulate the migrating motor complex while we're sleeping, which is when it should be active anyway. And those drugs can be taken for three to six months, and then um, the patient can try removing them to see how they do. So that is his general approach. Okay. So in your particular practice, you know, doing naturopathic medicine, are you doing your own uh, version of this? How do you go beyond um, that protocol? Yeah. Um, I would add to it the... Um, the dietary option as treatment, because that's what so, so many people have done, particularly with inflammatory bowel disease and also celiac disease. And so those are those diets I keep mentioning, specific carbohydrate diet or the GAPS diet. Um, they can be used um, as treatment, um, you know, in place of antibiotics or elemental diet. The issue there is timing. It will take much, much longer to um, to resolve the situation with those diets, but many believe it's going to give a real cure, a real lasting cure if you can stick with it. Um, whereas with the Cedar sinai approach and the, the generally the antibiotic approach, recurrence is quite common. I think there could be ways to really manage that. I don't really think there's um, an inherently wrong um, you know, thing there with the antibiotics or the elemental diet at all. I think it might have more to do with the timing of uh, the prevention diet and the, the composition of the prevention diet. But one way or the other, diet alone can be used as a treatment. And certainly that's going to be the best option in infants um, and young children who you don't want to put them on um, antibiotics. So that's uh, that's a big part of it. And then also, um, you know, naturopathically we can look at other things like supplementing with hydrochloric acid or testing to make sure um, somebody really does need that with a Heidelberg test. It's my favorite test for um, for low hydrochloric acid. And uh, we can also supplement with, if we felt it was necessary, with some of the, the enzymes that are deficient. That's one of the main pathophysiology uh, features is there's deficient brush border enzymes. So we could supplement with that. Another big thing is going to be stress. I didn't mention stress earlier as a cause, uh, as a contributing cause to this condition, but I think it's something uh, very important because when we are predominantly in a sympathetic state of uh, our nervous system, that's fight or flight. Everybody knows that. And everybody knows it's opposite to rest and digest. So when we're really stressed in sympathetic state, we can't do our digestion. So we will not secrete hydrochloric acid and we won't have our migrating motor complex. And there's actually studies that show um, stress stops the migrating motor complex. So I think that's another another important part that we need to look at. It's difficult, though. How do you tell somebody to just 
don't be stressed anymore. We live in a very stressful world. And some of these, um, some of these studies were somewhat infuriating on, on stress inhibiting the migrating motor complex because they showed things like just driving a stick shift in traffic inhibited the migrating motor complex. So it's like, well, great, you know. But, uh, but, but we, can, we can try. It's funny how sometimes the most basic things can make such a huge difference for, for patients, like saying, hey, don't stand up while you're eating. Like, sit down, smell your food, cook your food, chew your food before you swallow it, and that can just make the biggest difference in just helping to bring that person back into that, you know, rest and digest state, like you just said. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> it's funny. And even just, like, don't eat while you're driving. You know, it's like I'll be in traffic, look over and see someone chowing down a sandwich. I'm like, your motor migraine complex is not working right now. <laughs> <laughs> Nor are there any of their enzymes or acids coming out that need to digest that food. <laughs> yeah, seriously. They are SIBO waiting to happen. Um, now, you, you kind of just brushed real quickly over the, uh, the hydrochloric acid piece. And for those people who aren't familiar with that, can you explain a little bit of that and why that's so important? Uh, the the testing is that what you said? Uh, just just hydrochloric acid, its function, and then how it's related with uh, SIBO. Yeah, so hydrochloric acid is the natural stomach acid that we our stomach produces to digest our food, and we need that acid um, to be able, particularly to digest protein. But it also turns on other enzymes and gets the whole ball rolling. And um, stress, of course, inhibits it. And um, I think that actually might be one of the main reasons why so many people are low in stomach acid. We have a, um, a very, it's a very common condition to be low in stomach acid. Um, and so what can happen, I, I don't know if you've been over this in other shows, but the acid reflux uh, very commonly can be caused by having too low acid because the acid is necessary to keep the muscle tone of that sphincter that is between the esophagus and the stomach. And if you don't have enough acid to begin with, the muscle tone becomes lax, the sphincter is open, and whatever little bit of stomach acid you have can then come up into the esophagus. This is the scenario most naturopaths think of. There are other scenarios where you actually do have too much acid, and I, I think it's a good idea to be tested. I don't like the idea that if somebody has acid reflux, they're just immediately put on an antacid or a, a PPI, a, a proton pump inhibitor. I think uh, testing would be a good idea, and the Heidelberg test. It's a big machine that um, is used by uh, certain doctors. That not, it's not widely distributed. We have one here. We have a doctor who does it here in Portland. Um, but it, what you do is you swallow a, a capsule that, um, with a string, stays in your stomach, and it sends information, beams it out to a computer, uh, and then you challenge. You, you see how much acid you have in your stomach when you're at rest, and then you challenge it by drinking uh, something that would um, simulate eating and you see if you can reacidify. And that's why I like the test, because um, a lot of people have what's called hidden hypochlorhydria. Um, when, you, when you just see how much acid they have in their stomach at rest, it might be a proper amount. But as soon as food comes in, they can't actually uh, secrete the acid. So it's very, very important for, um, for our digestion. And many things um, can't be digested without the acid. Many minerals can't be digested without acid. So. Um, uh, inhibiting your acid is can be a cause of um, osteoporosis, actually. PPIs are linked with osteoporosis. So I, I don't like the idea of just getting rid of the acid because you're having a symptom. Right. Yeah, get to the cause of the problem. Um, our phone lines have opened up, so if you are wanting to call and ask a question, definitely do so, 818-495-6919. We're talking to Dr. Allison C. Becker on small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, the mouthful. 
Um, I want to take a couple of Facebook questions. I lost questions. you there, Dr. Lowe. I don't know if you can hear me. Oh, I'm sorry. Can oh, you hear me now? You. There you go. Perfect. Um, so I want to take a Facebook question from Doug. He's curious. He said, I've been reading about Saccharomyces. Um, what is this, and is it good for SIBO? Yeah, Saccharomyces is what's called a probiotic yeast, um, and it's been studied a lot to be able to um, stop diarrhea in cases of, of uh, an infection, infectious diarrhea. So it's very wonderful for that. Uh, many people like it. Um, I think it's a, I think it's a very good idea to to try it, uh, but I wouldn't do it right at first. Um, it doesn't seem to be a problem for people who have candida. That's always an issue. Uh, I've heard that it actually is beneficial for that. Um, but it's not. it wouldn't be my first choice. I can't exactly tell you why. It's just, you know, having done all the reading I've done um, and study on the subject, I think it's good. But, uh, but I, I think it's better to start with a, um, a, a multi-strain probiotic or just uh, homemaking your own yogurt. I think those seem to, to do a very good job. And actually, there's one other probiotic I really like if, um, if a patient has IBS because it's shown so well in the studies, and that is a form of bifidus, and it's bifidus infantis, um, has been shown very well in the studies, and patients do quite well with it. What about for uh, kids or babies if they have this condition? Do they have a, a different treatment than what you talked about? The main treatment for them is really going to be the dietary treatment, getting them on a specific carbohydrate diet or the GAPS diet. Those diets include uh, probiotics. In the specific carbohydrate diet, the probiotics come from homemade yogurt. And in the GAPS diet, uh, the, that's geared towards the autistic patient and, and cognitive brain patients. Those patients often cannot tolerate dairy, at least not right at the beginning. So the probiotics come from fermented vegetables in that in that diet. So, uh, you know, when you when you take a good look at these diets, they are really quite incredible. Um, the the way that their their approach of, of killing the bacteria is is just sort of the same idea as the elemental diet, uh, but it works slower, which is to reduce carbohydrates so much in the diet that you starve the bacteria, but yet you feed yourself, you feed the patient. And uh, they're very effective at that. And then they have all these ingredients that can help um, heal a leaky a small intestine lining, a leaky gut, and then they have the probiotics. So they really are comprehensive treatments. Hmm. I love that. Um, so I'm going to also take a, a Twitter question. Oh, Dr. Too. Lowe, I lost you again. Can you hear me again? Hello? Can you hear me there? Dr. Seebecker, can you hear me? Dr. Lowe, are you there? I'm not sure if you can hear me. I can hear you. Oh. Can you hear me? Now I can hear you. Perfect. I think it's because I'm on my cell phone. Sorry, listeners. I know it's kind of ghetto today, but I, I will get back on the landline next week. Um, um, I want to do a Twitter question. This is um, kind of a – I don't know if this is totally related to our topic, but it says, um, is an increased transit time at the beginning of doing a paleo diet a cause for concern? No, I don't think so. Um, I think that happens pretty pretty commonly, actually. I've I've heard of this quite a bit. I I think what's going on with that is the fat. Um, when most people go on a paleo diet, their their ratio of fat is increased, and fat is actually one of the main um, stimulators for the large intestine to uh, to have a bowel movement. So I personally I think that's what's going on. I'd, I'd say um, cut back on the fat a little bit, depending upon how much you're doing um, in your in your paleo diet. Increase it slowly. 
Mm-hmm. And it also depends on how fast this transit time is. You know, if it went from like three days to like you know sixteen hours, maybe that's a a good change. So, right. That's right. Exactly. Exactly. Right. Yeah, we're not that transit time is. Yeah, yeah, would be a good thing. Um, this question is from John. He wants to know uh, after getting the stomach bug, is there something you'd recommend to do to prevent getting SIBO? That's a great question. You know, what the um, what the gastroenterologists are recommending is using the antibiotic that is used um, for SIBO in those cases. That there, there are papers and articles written on that. That's a, a strong recommendation. That antibiotic is called rifaximin. That's the, that's the drug name. The brand name in the United States is called Zypaxan. Um, and you can find the spellings of those on my website. But uh, I, I think that might be a good idea. Um, or if you don't have uh, access to antibiotics, you could take herbal, herbal antimicrobials, um, traditional herbal antibiotics, such as um, any of the berberine-containing herbs. That would be like golden seal would be a good one, or cinnamon is another antimicrobial. Uh, just garlic is an excellent antimicrobial. Um, you know, even if you don't have any uh, supplements around you, if you're traveling or something, eat a lot of garlic. Um, so those are some options. I, I think... I think those are a very good idea. Basically, you want to kill the pathogenic bacteria as quick as you can before it can damage you. Hmm. So after getting the stomach bug, even though you feel like you've had it all cleaned out, you still could have that bacteria kind of hanging out and potentially causing problems, correct? Well, I don't know. If if you're really done with it, if you're truly done with it, I'm not sure. Um, You know, many people after after the infection will have transient... Uh, carbohydrate malabsorption, which is exactly the same scenario of what you have in SIVO, but it will be transient for them. And that's because when you when you have a really strong uh, flushing of water through the small intestine, which eventually goes down to the large intestine and becomes diarrhea, um, you can actually wash away some of the lining of your small intestine, and the enzymes that are present there will be washed away. And those are the enzymes we need, those brush border enzymes, for uh, the last stages of digestion of carbohydrates and sugars. So things like uh, lactose in milk and um, just grains and starches could be, could be troublesome to digest. So from, from that perspective, a good treatment after you have gastroenteritis is one of these diets for, for a short amount of time. Now, I don't know if that would uh, for sure um, help you to not get, to develop SIBO, but it certainly couldn't hurt. Right, definitely couldn't do any harm. Um, I don't know if we, did we mention what the specific carbohydrate diet is? Well, I'll mention it now. It's, um, yeah, go for it. <laughs> it's, uh, it's basically a grain-free diet. And um, as we mentioned, the idea is to starve the bacteria by reducing their food source, which is carbohydrates. And it's called specific because it, it removes polysaccharides, which are complex carbohydrates. That would be grains and um, many beans and starch. Uh, and it allows, um, and, and it also removes oligosaccharides, and those are what we think of as prebiotics. So that's like inulin um, or FOS is in a lot of probiotic formulas as a prebiotic. Those are oligosaccharides. Those are moderate length um, starches and, and sugars. Um, and it eliminates disaccharides, which are double sugars. That's lactose is the prime example, which uh, which is two single sugars hooked together, and it's the single sugars of glucose and galactose hooked together, and table sugar is another disaccharide, so it eliminates those, but it allows monosaccharides, 
um, monosaccharides, the only real place you can find that would be in honey. And honey has the uh, monosaccharides of glucose and fructose in it. So it will allow honey. And then it does allow vegetables and fruits. Uh, fruits, if you eat them ripe, mostly have the monosaccharides of fructose. Um, and vegetables, they'll have fiber, and they will have some oligosaccharides, uh, fibers and oligosaccharides, and they will have some uh, polysaccharides, but um, but that's okay. They figure if you can tolerate it, if it's not giving you symptoms, then you can eat it, and it, you're still reducing the main food source for people. Starchy vegetables are eliminated. And uh, some of the things that were so excellent about the specific carbohydrate diet is um, Elaine Gossel did a great job of explaining how we can have dairy that's lactose-free. Many people don't even really know uh, that there really is lactose-free dairy, except for maybe that lactate milk you can buy in the store, which I guess isn't completely, or the specific carbohydrate folks say it's really not quite okay. I don't know if it's fully lactose-free or not, but I think they're concerned a little bit more there about um, the high galactose level being a bit hard to digest um, by the liver, actually. But uh, but there's so many forms of lactose-free dairy that, that a, a person can have, like any aged cheese or a homemade yogurt. Uh, the reason you have to do homemade yogurt is it needs to be fermented long enough to get rid of all the lactose. Um, and then there's dry curd cottage cheese. Um, and let me see if there's anything else. Those are those are the main ones. Oh, and then there's um, you can make... Uh, you can, of course, make yogurt out of cream, too. So you can essentially have sour cream. just can't really have fluid milk. And one of the other wonderful things that um, it introduced was, which is such a big thing in the paleo diets now, is um, baking with nuts, with nut flour. The, the first place that I know of that this was ever put forward was the specific carbohydrate diet. So, um, so you know, for a person that is allowing themselves to eat honey and things like that, you can make muffins and treats made out of nut flour, which is just wonderful. So so that's the basic overview of the diet. And and one thing I think I just want to mention is that some a lot of people go on these diets, specific carbohydrate diets and GAPS. Uh, m- most of the people do incredibly well. It, it controls or even cures the condition they went on it for. But some people still find they have trouble. And a point I just want to make is that the original specific carbohydrate diet was created by Dr. Haas back in the 1920s. And his diet is a little different from the diet that Elaine writes about in her book. She sort of studied it all and expanded the diet a little bit. But I want to make the point that if you know if anyone's listening who who is one of those people who has tried these diets but find they still have symptoms, you can actually go a little stricter um, back to the diet of Dr. Haas. He didn't allow, um, the specific carbohydrate diet allows as you heal, it allows some beans. He didn't allow any beans. He didn't allow any nuts. Um, and vegetables came in later. So um, so if somebody's struggling, there, there are still options for treatment within these diets. Awesome. Dr. Seabaker, do, do you have time for another question? Can we call her? Yes, absolutely. Perfect. Absolutely. Okay, I'm going to take, take a call from the 508. Caller, are you there? I'm here. Great. What's your name and where are you calling from? Lisa calling from Massachusetts. Hey, Lisa. I recognize your voice. You've called before. What's your uh, question for Dr. Seebecker? I have two, actually. One, I was wondering what you think of raw milk kefir on SCD instead of yogurt because it's easier to make. And also the rifaximine for the um, intestinal overgrowth, does that kill off all of the good bacteria as a regular antibiotic would? Okay, so for the first question, I think raw milk kefir is wonderful. 
Um, Dr. Campbell McBride does uh, does mention that it has a stronger effect, and so some people can't tolerate it right at first. It, it may be, um, she says, too cleansing, too detoxifying uh, for for a more sensitive patient. But other than that issue, I think it's wonderful, and and it's great that you think it's easier to make. I think it's wonderful. So go ahead and use it, make it. And as for the second question. Yes, the rifaximin, um, it's quite a local acting antibiotic, and that's why it's so effective in this condition. Um, it is considered to be virtually non-absorbable, which means that it's not, almost none of it's going to cross through uh, your system and get into blood. So it's going to stay in the intestine. That's good because that means we won't really have the side effects that we have from uh, from antibiotics like urinary tract infections and things. But, uh, yes, it will kill uh, the good bacteria, too. Now, that's not that much of a concern because we uh, we repopulate our intestines within about one to two weeks. So that's why it's important to get on a prokinetic of some sort um, in the cedar cyanide treatment protocol because you will just naturally repopulate. Uh, there's some interesting studies on that that show that 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 actually has to do with the appendix in people that have an appendix, that the appendix acts as a reservoir for the bacterial fingerprint or population specific to each person um, in the appendix. And once you have a, a clearing out of everything, it just gets repopulated from there. So if you're taking the rifaximin, would you wait until you're done with the course to start probiotics or kefir or the ProConnect that you talked about? Yeah, so there's two things there. There's probiotics and the, and the prokinetic. That's a motility motility drug. Um, that yes, that motility drug. You wait until after you finish the antibiotics. Um, and if you're getting a second test after after you've um, taken your antibiotics, it's a good idea to get to test yourself again uh, with the breath test to see if the antibiotics have been successful. You, you take your test and then you go ahead and start your motility drug. But in terms of probiotics. Most of the studies that have been done um, that use probiotics, they wait until after the antibiotics and then they start the probiotics afterwards. But um, my associate, Dr. Sandberg-Lewis, um, and I have treated many patients using the probiotics during and had really great success. So I, I think you can do it either way. Great. Thank you so much. Thanks You're for welcome. Your um, so, so uh, Dr. Seebecker, do you do the, the probiotics and the antibiotics in the same dose, or do you do them apart from each other? I would do them apart from each other. You know, it's interesting. I, had, um, I have attended some really interesting lectures discussing that, that uh, probiotics taking, taken at the same time as antibiotics actually help the antibiotics work better. But in this case, I like the idea of um, really, you know, it doesn't matter. It's up to the patient whenever it's convenient to them. But I like the idea of doing the probiotics at night, and um, generally I like that idea because one thing I haven't mentioned is that acidophilus and business have been shown to stimulate the migrating motor complex. So I think it's nice to take them before bed because they'll stimulate the natural migrating motor complex that we should have at night. And do you think that should be with food or without food? I've heard debates on both sides for probiotics. It's true, um, and I think it can be either way. You know, I, I was always in the camp that said with food because from uh, from our Western Price, you know, information, we know that uh, people all around the world um, ate their probiotics in food and with food. Uh, so that's how I always thought it was a good way to do it. But I've seen some really interesting information showing um, showing some other things, like, for instance, taking supplement, just a probiotic supplement 
uh, alone at night stimulates the migrating motor complex. So I think that's a good idea too. I think either way is fine, which is nice because, you know, whether you're taking your probiotic with food, as food, without food, as a supplement, it doesn't matter. Just take the probiotics, you know? Yeah, just take the dang probiotics, okay. <laughs> yeah, don't worry too much about it. No stress. Yeah. <laughs> just take yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, last Facebook question. This is from Tiffany. She says, I get bloated when I take a probiotic with FOS. What does that mean? Yeah, so this is actually one of the one of the key indicators for SIBO. Um, the FOS is a prebiotic or an oligosaccharide, and um, it's meant to be food for bacteria. So if you have SIBO, if you have an overgrowth of bacteria in your small intestine and you swallow down some food for the bacteria in the form of FOS or prebiotic, it's going to feed it and it's going to make your symptoms worse. Now, I, I know we're almost out of time, but I just want to take a moment to mention something that I think is, is really um, interesting and important. When, when the bacteria make the gas, we talked about that with testing, you give them food, the bacteria eat the food and they make gas. And we talked about that's how we can, we can test for this condition. But what's really important to know is that the gas causes four problems. One, it causes physical distension or bloating. So for all of those people who suffer from bloating and wonder, what is this? That's what it is. It's excessive bacteria making excessive gas in your small intestine. If they were making a lot of gas in your large intestine, you would be able to get rid of it through farting pretty pretty easily. <laughs> but, in, right, but if it's in the small intestine, it has a valve separating it from the large intestine, and it's kind of trapped, and your, your belly bloats out and distends, and second, it can cause pain because the intestines are sensitive to uh, chemical irritation and to pressure. So the gas is a pressure, a strong pressure, and plus the muscles can contract against the gas, causing more pain. So that's where the pain can come from. And then the last, the third and the fourth things that this gas creates is constipation or diarrhea. That's a key thing that I'm glad I didn't forget to mention, that um, that bacterial gas in our small intestine actually causes diarrhea or constipation. Quite an astounding finding with the, with the constipation in particular. Um, and Dr. Pimentel uh, and his team are the ones responsible for finding that out, that the gas of methane interacts with the physiology of the small intestine lining to create a reverse movement, a, a reverse and actual, actually hypermotility in the small intestine, and that causes constipation. And likewise, hydrogen gas um, seems to cause diarrhea. The exact mechanism isn't known, but, um, but the more hydrogen gas, the more diarrhea. Wow. That's so interesting, and so many people have no idea about this, and they're suffering from it. I, I remember when I was in naturopathic school, you know, so many of our, my, my uh, classmates would take probiotics, like, I can't handle that because the FOS in it. And little did they know, they had Tebow possibly. <laughs> oh, well, I'm, so, I'm so glad that, you know, you've known people who said that. I mean, what I, what I like to tell people is um, if, if a patient says that they can't handle probiotics, um, a lot of times people don't realize it's the prebiotic in the probiotic. So people just think, I can't handle probiotics. But it is extremely common to, to have a pretty bad reaction to the prebiotic, particularly if you have SIBO. I mean, that's really, that would be the case. Right. Do you typically just, just recommend a probiotic that does not have FOS in it? Yes. Uh, the, there's two, product, uh, two or three probiotics that I could recommend um, I like the Claire uh, Complete Therabiotic. Actually, it is in a base of inulin, which is a prebiotic, but it doesn't have the inulin there 
added as a prebiotic. I was quite nervous about using this probiotic, but um, so many people have told me that they have no problem with it. It works very well for them. So a little bit of inulin in the base doesn't seem to be a problem. Uh, Dr. Kama McBride has, um, there's a probiotic associated with the, with the GAPS program called BioCult, um, and that one has a soil bacteria in it called Bacillus subtilis that seems to do very well for people with a mood and cognitive disorders. So I think that's a, that's a good one for those people. And it has a base of maltodextrin, a little bit, little bit of maltodextrin, if I'm not mistaken. So once again, a little bit of that does not seem to be a problem. And then I also like Align, and that's the one that is the Bifidus Infantis. Align is um, available in, like, Walgreens and everything. And, and when I first found out about it, I thought, I kind of looked down my nose at it because, it, you know, I thought, oh, goodness, what could this be? It's, you know, you just buy it unrefrigerated in in Target or Walgreens. How great can this be? But it has surprised the heck out of me. It's a wonderful probiotic. And it has a little bit of sugar in it, in its base. So once again, you'd think, oh, I can't have it. But uh, person after person responds so well to it. I think if it's just an infinitesimal amount, tiny little bit in the, in the capsule, it's okay. If it if the prebiotic is really put in there as an extra ingredient, that's that's the trouble. Got it. That's good to know. You don't have to necessarily break the bank to uh, get a good probiotic. You can even get. Oh, it from I lost Walgreens. you again. Yeah. Can you hear me again, Dr. Seabecker? Are you, you there, Dr. Lou? Yeah. Yeah, I can hear you. Can oh. you hear me? Now I can. Hi. Okay, good. God, man, I got to call Sprint about this. They are slacking. Um, now, I was just saying that I think it's great that, you know, patients don't have to necessarily break the bank to get a good probiotic. They can just go to Walgreens and try that out. I think that's great. Well, it's not the cheapest. Even a line is not the cheapest. Honestly, the cheapest oh. way to get probiotics is to make your own yogurt or your own fermented vegetables. You get way more than you ever would in a supplement. Uh, such such a higher amount. It's so economical. You can make a uh, You can make a half gallon of yogurt. Uh, for five dollars or less. Wow! It goes back to just eat real food. Get it from your food. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Dr. Seabecker, it's been awesome having you on the show. Is there anything else you'd like to leave with our listeners? Oh, I, I think we've said, said enough. <laughs> I will just redirect everyone back to um, who wants more information back to the website sibioinfo.com. And um, for anyone who's who's uh, wants to know tons more about it, look for my book. It'll probably be out in about a year. Um, it's going to take a while to get it out, but I'm excited about it. Well, I'm sure it'll be worth the wait. Thank you so much for coming on the show. I really appreciate it, and uh, you have a fabulous night. Thank you. Take care. You too. Bye. All right, that was our show, guys. Thanks for tuning in. A fabulous show, definitely an underdiagnosed condition. Check out uh, Dr. C. Becker's website, sibioinfo.com. Uh, next, oh, and also just want to thank you guys for all the questions from uh, Lisa, Michelle, Bobby, Jamie, Doug, and John, and Tiffany. Getting a lot more questions with each show, so that's great. Uh, definitely tune in to next week's show. We'll have Dr. T.S. Wiley on, author of Lights Out. We'll be taking your questions. It'll be a fabulous show to tune into. And then the following week, Dr. Daniel DeLapp on dermatology and naturopathic medicine. Check out my website, drlaurennoel.com, and we will check you next week. Thanks so much. Have a fabulous week. Bye. 
North Pole Hotline. Help! My in-laws are hosting Thanksgiving, and we're bringing the dressing. You mean stuffing? No, dressing. I need cute outfits for everyone. Get to Old Navy. Old Navy? Yep, Old Navy's kicking off the holidays with stylish denim, velvet tops, the season's best dresses, and 40% off your entire purchase now through Tuesday. 40% off? We'll be stuffing our shopping bags full. And don't forget colorful sweaters and amazing outerwear, too. You can even buy online and pick up in store for free. Ooh, I love an all-you-can-wear buffet. Holiday your heart out at Old Navy and OldNavy.com. Valid 1118 to 1120. Exclusion supply. See stores for details. North Pole Hotline, Mrs. Claus here. My holiday shopping list is so big, I can't wait for Black Friday. Get to Old Navy's biggest sale of the year starting tomorrow. Old Navy? Beat the crowds for 50% off your entire purchase. 50% off? Plus, this Friday only, Old Navy's famous cozy socks are just a buck in stores. Old Navy's giving $1 for every pair sold up to a million dollars to boys and girls clubs. So I can do good, look good, and get 50% off your entire purchase at Old Navy and OldNavy.com. Valid 1121 to 1123. Exclusions apply. See store for details. Cozy socks valid 1123 in stores only. Limit 10.